Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, April. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. So I think a good place to start because you've got this amazing background, a lawyer, Fulbright scholar and so on. Let's start there. Just give us a rundown of this amazing career you've had so the audience knows who April is. Sure. Well, it's quite funny, actually, because today people ask me, they're like, wait a minute, you're a lawyer, you're an investor, you're a global development executive, you're a yoga teacher, like you're all these different things. But like, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Appropriate. But it is interesting. And I I like to frame my career not so much as a path or a linear pursuit, but very much as a portfolio, as you think of like an investor. I like that. I like that. Or an artist might have a portfolio, but it has been 100% global and international and 100% in a way from this inside out very interdisciplinary. So I spent the first 15 years, well, actually, after college, I had the Fulbright, and then I spent four years actually researching and guiding hiking and biking trips. Not your typical career path, but... No, not at all. Yeah, no, it was... Even today, I can say it was the best job I ever had. I mean, who doesn't want to get paid Job in inverted commas. Exactly, riding your bicycle through vineyards and translating wine tastings. It taught me a lot about how the rest of the world works, but it wasn't a career in terms of something that I, the kind of impact I wanted to have over time. But then after grad school, spent several years actually as an attorney doing international finance, but really focused on finance for emerging markets and the developing world. And then moved from there actually into global development. And so spent 15 years as a global development executive working on a range of the sustainable development goals, which again gave me a worldview that wasn't about necessarily what's happening in major metropolises, but really what makes the global economy work at the base of the economic pyramid? How do we build more sustainable and inclusive business models? And I was doing that work when smartphones showed up and all the rest, and immediately I was like, these smartphones are going to change a lot of stuff for a lot of people, not just the wealthy. And then about seven years ago, I went independent. And since then, I've been an advisor to startups, governments, nonprofits, established companies, think tanks, and really looking at where are we heading? Where is the future heading? And many people look at me as sort of a futurist. And I'm trying to help organizations figure out Where is the future heading and how do they and their organization fit within it? What do they need to have on their radar that perhaps they don't? And again, though, always with this lens of inclusion and how do we create a brighter tomorrow for all? That's quite interesting, right? Because you used a very important phrase here. You said that you worked around the world, but you worked to understand bottom up how things developed as opposed to economics specialists who look at aggregate data and look for trends. You are more like an economic anthropologist, right? You would work with individuals, you'd build these storylines of people understand things. I'm guessing you worked in microfinance, right? Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So it's funny because I did my law degree and I did international financial law and I did my finance degree, but I focused on microfinance. So even my professors were like, this isn't what we're used to seeing. I'm not sure this counts. And I was like, "Mm." I think it does, you know, what's happening in Bolivia or in Kenya or in Pakistan or take your pick of country, small scale lending, small scale savings and credit products for the economically active poor. There are far more economically active poor people by a factor than there are wealthy, quote unquote, people in the world, financially wealthy. That was really appealing to me from the get go. I think going back to childhood before I knew what finance was, I was raised in a household that was always just very much about how do we treat every single human with the same dignity and the same respect and that your value is not equated to how much you have in your bank account. Your value is equated to the fact of you're being human and being alive at this time and being capable of contributing to society. So that had a big effect on just how I see the world. But then exactly like the, the economics, you have the training, you know, kind of how to speak that language, yeah. but you use it figuratively. You use it to have a very different kind of conversation. 
Yes, because you know you use some very interesting words here, right? If you look at individuals around the world, whether it's Bolivia, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, those at the base of the pyramid, they're not really looking for a handout. They really want an opportunity. They want dignity, really. And what's interesting about your work is that you're based in the United States, right? And you're working with American companies. Is that correct? But your formative experiences of understanding the consumer market is in emerging economies. How, how do you tie those two together? Does it give you an advantage? I like to think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it, it does actually. And it's quite funny because I lived overseas for many years. And when I came back to the US, and I was actually born and raised largely in San Francisco. So back in sort of Silicon Valley, which yeah. was quite different when I was growing up. But people would say like, where are you from? Yeah, and I'd be like, I'm from? here. And they were like, you can't be from here, actually. And I say this as a huge mark of um, admiration. The biggest compliment I was ever paid, I think, was when a Canadian said, no, 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 you must be Canadian. I was like, oh, Why I was Canadian? Why Canadian? <laughs> but a sensibility that is not, I've never thought, and I know this, this is provocative in some conversations, sure. it's contrarian, it's... Let's throw it out there, April. Let's put it out there. Yeah, well, there's just this sense of even when I was growing up, the notion of like having a goal that was simply to make a lot of money, I never, it, it, it's not that I didn't care about money. I, I did degrees in finance. I love numbers. Yeah. I love markets. But I thought, if that's how you want to define whether you've had a successful life, like, I don't quite get it. It, yeah. it seems to me like we've created money. It's this metric, this kind of random metric that we use to measure a lot of stuff. But how does that define my worth as a human? I was like, yes. I think I wanted to find my worth by how many other humans I can actually help, which maybe money factors into that, but it goes far beyond. And actually, I just had a conversation earlier this week about the future of philanthropy yeah. and the reckoning and the disconnects that philanthropy for many years has had. And it is interesting because even philanthropic efforts, even grants and donations, we still view through the lens of money, which I'm not saying that's bad. It, it is the metric sure. we've chosen. But there are so many ways that we can actually create a better world that works for all that have nothing to do with money. And so all of my time spent overseas, and in particular through my independent travels and whatnot, yeah. which 98% of them were in the developing world or emerging markets or frontier markets, really shaped my worldview in a way that like, it's not your typical Western market-driven. I mean, it's very market-driven. But it's not with an assumption that everyone has a roof over their head yes. or has easy access to transportation. For a period in my life, I knew and worked with far more people who had their entire bank account on their phone. And I'm not saying through mobile, mobile banking. I'm saying that's they, they bought phone credit. And that was the wealth that they had yes. was wealth stored in their phone. Then I did people who had a bank account, people for whom a bank account was an absolute luxury. And that sinks in after a while and you start to really appreciate it leads to on the one hand a lot of gratitude for so much of what we have in life that we believe we're entitled to is actually a huge privilege <laughs> that's yes not, that's right not people have and then to realize that there was so much that I could do to help others access those privileges but those things that actually are are quite core to caring for one's family pursuing dreams building businesses or I prefer to think of them more as like livelihood right? Where it's your yes. life, your livelihood. It, it's how you bring your best self to the world. I like the way you say that. We actually have a little bit of a similar background because before all of this, I used to be a consulting partner and I did a lot of work in microfinance and retail banking in emerging markets. And I remember doing a study many, many years ago and we went into this country and we were interviewing the farmers in a very rural area. There's no electricity. There's nothing there. And we interviewed these farmers and I remember something that struck me about them. It was never about wealth for them. They didn't think they were poor. They wanted access to banking purely because they needed to pay for goods. We saw banking and access to a mobile phone as one way to make these people wealthier, but they never saw it that way. For them, it was a means to an end, and they were very content. They weren't looking to change their lives. They weren't looking to buy a BMW or anything like that. And what's interesting about this, and this triggers what I asked earlier and what you explained very well, oftentimes we have a Western model of what success is. 
and we try to export it to the rest of the world. But what's good about you is that your formative years were spent appreciating and understanding other cultures and what they thought was important. Yeah, and thank you. I'm just going to pause and say thank you for that. It feels, it always feels good to be heard and to just sort of, I think, yeah, you very much got what I was trying to convey. And also, I don't think that all of this has to happen in one's childhood. Sure. It happens in many, many cases in life. But to, to realize in retrospect that the focus was to learn to see every human as worthy, yes. every human as capable, and to have the opportunity early to not literally, but as much as possible to figuratively stand in the shoes of someone else or alongside them, but really sort of working, if you will, in the trenches with yes. them, understanding like, I didn't just visit urban slums. I really got to know urban slums with no water and sanitation. Actually, these were very much like social anthropology studies yeah. amongst the economically active poor. But for a couple of years, I went into excruciating detail around the differences between what a family living on $1 a day, $2 a day, $5 a day, or $10 a day, which for you or me is the difference in a couple yeah. of cars. In a developing world, there is a world of difference between a family living on $1 a day or $10 a day. But they are all incredibly bright. Yes. They have ideas. They can launch business. There's no issue of lack of capability. It is fluke of luck. It is when and yeah, where you were born absolutely. on what tracks. And to realize that and then to see, oh, my goodness, there is so much talent that yes. I can help block. There are so many dots that I can help connect systemically. And back to your point, finance is like a lubricant, yeah. but it's no more than that. And yes. yet in the West writ large, and you know, I'll show my colors a little bit, but like yes. I'm, I'm, I'm a total fan, like I like finance, yes. I like money. That's, it's, it's an interesting concept to explore, to use, to use better, but it's entirely human made. And we've come up with this metric that we use to judge and value so many things which have not, has nothing to do with our actual humanity and who we are if we stripped all of that away. And what you find when you go and work with you know, economically active poor, those at the base of the economic pyramid, they're missing in large part that external metric. But it actually, they have a much clearer sense of their own worthiness yes. human because they haven't gotten on that hamster wheel or that ladder or whatever that's like, it has to always be more and it's all about money and I will measure myself. My value to society is measured in dollars and cents. It's none of that. And that's really refreshing. Yeah, you know, one of the things I always think about when you read about poverty, inequality and so on in the press, I mean, these are important, serious issues that need to be dealt with and many bright minds like yourself are working on it. But I always ask myself this, if a child knows they're poor and feels they're poor, is that child better off than a child that doesn't know he or she is poor? And I don't know the answer to that. But I do know from my childhood, we never knew we were poor. And there was no shame and fear. We just thought, well, this is life. We're going to do the best we can. And I wonder if things would have been different if we knew we were poor. It's a great question. And I'm not sure there's one easy answer, but yes. I will have a couple of flavors, if you will. Yeah. And I grew up in a household. My parents were public school teachers, very modest. Our needs were taken care of. Our wants were largely not, yeah. but it was never about physical possessions. And I think it was drilled into my head. The two things we were allowed to spend money on at all were education and travel. Those Very good. And so, you know, even in hindsight, I'm like, yeah. that was good. But the travel wasn't fancy. It wasn't international. It wasn't plane tickets. It was hiking, camping, yeah. um, you know, digging pit toilets. It was but, <laughs> but understanding. It was national parks, largely. My dad was a cultural geographer. So it was all about maps and plants and animals and that sort of thing. But it was still travel. It was still diversity. It was still exploring. So back to the whole notion of poverty, I think. The two things that keep coming to mind, and I've been steeping myself in them for, mm -hmm. well, my life, but especially in recent times, there are many kinds of poverty. Financial poverty is just one kind. I yes. would argue that particularly for children, emotional poverty is really, really big. A child that is surrounded by love, but may not have all the toys he or she wants, I don't know, that's a, that's a very different kind of poor. If you're, as a child, and I think maybe for you too, like, if you're f surrounded by a family who loves you. Yeah, makes a big and, difference. And it makes all know, the difference. It makes all the difference. And you know that 
if you were to have difficulty that your parents, your family would help. Yes. If you were to be hungry, that your parents would work hard to find you something to eat. If you know, those are the sorts of things. It's the psychology of poverty that really traps us, that really wreaks havoc. But financial poverty being just one manifestation. No, I, and, I love that answer. That's an amazing and, answer. There's a, there's a poverty of ideas as well. Do you live in a household where you're encouraged to be curious, where everything is interesting? Actually, this relates directly to change because one of my one of my big questions that I ask like everybody these days is, did you grow up in a household where change was scary or a threat? Yeah. Or was change something that was like an adventure and you were told it should pique your curiosity? Like, what about this change can help you grow? Right? Those two households will produce very different children over time. Yes, absolutely. And, and this poverty of ideas or poverty of, I don't want to say stimulation, but I think that's another kind of poverty. And so a child can grow up being very, very rich in every metric, yes. except maybe not money. That child's not going to know they're, they're financially poor. That, ch that child's still going to believe they can do anything growing up. Then they will learn about money and they will be like, hmm, okay, you know, and start tackling it in different ways. But that's one thing. And the other that I wanted to bring up around not just poverty, it's actually a meta theme that, that I'm happy to just kind of put out there. Mm -hmm. It's the whole notion of privilege. So privilege would be like lack of poverty. You're, yes. you're like whatever and on whatever metric. But again, what I find more and more, privilege blinds us. Yes, that's true. It keeps us from seeing the full picture. And when we're privileged, and if we, we, we have to recognize the privilege, if we recognize the privilege and we recognize what we might perceive that we risk by giving up that privilege or if we were to lose that privilege, we don't want to go there. We're very, very afraid of that. And this is where, again, it's, it's interesting. You look at people who have, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work, for example, around refugees. And refugees or people who, are, who grow up in times of quite a bit of strife in which they do not know what tomorrow holds. Yes. They grow up to be, I mean, I'm not, it's not easy. I don't wish sure. that anyone had to be a refugee, but there is a self-awareness and an ability to lean into uncertainty Yes. that the most privileged people on the planet can't seem to get their hand, head around. And so there's something really interesting there. I think we could all learn a lot by not only getting rid or, or acknowledging and letting go of some of our privilege or sharing it with others, but also how that may play into our views on poverty, our views on equity, our views on inclusion and so forth. You raised two very important points, which I want to tease out for the audience so they can work with this idea. The first one is that what you said about the types of poverty is very deep, very profound. I think it's one of the most important takeaways from this entire conversation. Because oftentimes we think throwing money at a problem is going to fix everything. But throwing money at a problem where you have a poverty of a sense of community, love, care, ideas, you know, money alone doesn't fix that, right? The other thing you said, which I think is a very clever way of phrasing it, and I haven't heard that before, is that privilege can be a disadvantage because it has not equipped you to deal with adversity. And yep. oftentimes people want to protect privilege not knowing it is a disadvantage in certain times, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny because even listening to you say this back, I'm like, absolutely. And I realize at the same time that I'm saying it, I realize how counterintuitive, contrarian, provocative, you know, people sure. going, no, 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 no. And I'm sitting here going like, I take your point and I, I see it from that lens too, but I think, what served me really well and also what I think would serve all of us to the extent that we can access it is that ability to hold the paradox of what I am saying. Hold the paradox yes. of what you've been taught versus what the world actually needs. Hold the paradox between what the world looks like in times of stasis and what the world looks like in times of massive change. Because a lot of what I'm saying too, when the world doesn't work out as you think it's going to work out, all of this gets thrown in the air and what you find are people who are privileged. Yes, they may have more options. They may have more resources. Change hits, for example. Oh, we need to adapt. We need to pivot. You need to do whatever. If you have a bit more resources, whether it's money or otherwise, yeah, you're, you're more resilient because you have more choices yes. in that part. But when change hits and you have privilege, you are wed to the belief that you, whatever you do has to maintain that privilege. Yes. Change hits that knocks you off of that 
you are lost in a way that people who never had that privilege simply don't know. And they end up actually, they're, they're more resilient in that way that I think kind of really matters at the yes. end of the day. I like the way you phrase it, very well said. So let's just uh, shift gears a little bit here, right? Because you've got this amazing understanding of different cultures around the world, a deep appreciation and an ability to tease out very important insights. And then you live in San Francisco, which is like the new center of wealth, and you're working with people who believe that even though the world is going faster and faster, they can do the inhuman and go faster and faster. At some point, you can't go any faster, right? So how do you advise people to balance that? Well, this is one of the many things I, I, I love about what I do and perhaps even more like how I do it. And also a quick clarification, I was born and raised in San Francisco, have lived there for many, many years. I'm not full-time there right now, but sure. San Francisco is the city I'm most affiliated with, but also West Coast, Portland, Oregon, yeah. Pacific Northwest, all of that. But it still factors into the like the, the rat race and, yes. the, and the hamster wheel and the more is better and the venture capital and all the stuff that we hear about um, the San Francisco Bay Area today, which it's funny. I grew up there mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's interesting. Like my, my parents were more like hippies, right? Yeah. So the San Francisco I grew up in is very different than very the different. Yes. That I returned to as an adult many years later. It was a bit of culture shock, I will admit, when I came back and was like, "Ooh, I, like it's still the same beautiful city, but it's dealing with problems and challenges, and also has a demographic yeah. that it's always been a place of kind of pioneering spirit and entrepreneurship. Yes. That's what the West Coast. That's that's what you get." But it's grown and evolved in ways both good and, I'll be candid, ways that are not good. Yeah. So a lot of times people say to me, they call me an insider-outsider, yeah. which is I understand enough about how, and I realize I'm generalizing here, but writ large, how startups work, mm-hmm. how to build companies, how to expand markets, how to design products. Like I get it. I've been steeping myself in a lot of different sectors for a while. But I bring an outsider perspective. I'm not so wed to any one company that I've become siloed in my thinking, that the only other examples I know are from within your industry, or I assume that any one way of doing things is categorically better than another. A lot of times what I'm asked to do is bring in that outside perspective, those examples from other sectors, particularly having nothing to do with the company in question. But what can we learn from really stretching beyond our comfort zone, really going somewhere that we would never go? And, and even the way that it's been phrased is they're like, April, you spend your time thinking about all those things that as a company, we know we, we, know we mm-hmm. sense are important, but we are too busy with the day-to-day, keeping the trains running on time. We don't have time for that. And even if we did, we wouldn't know where to start to look. And so it's a nice kind of... I'm bridging, I'm cross-pollinating a yes, lot of I like that word. And in that regard, what you asked about what's it like to be in San Francisco, be in Silicon Valley, but come with this very not San Francisco, mm-hmm. not Silicon Valley perspective, it's actually exactly what they're asking for. It's like, we want you to shake us up. Now, the challenge becomes, I can come in with lots of advice and ideas, and they're often very intrigued. Yes. They're not necessarily ready to dive in and yeah. take action on those things. So that for me is where it gets a little more uh, sometimes frustrating, but sometimes, you know, I've seen it happen many, many times where on day one, there there's like this deep listening to mm-hmm. what I'm helping with, the, the information that I'm conveying. And there's a kind of like, whoa, we need to digest that. And they're not ready to, to move on day one. But then months, sometimes years later, They're like, wow, it was so hard for us to digest because it went to the core DNA of how we built everything. And what we realized is the more layers we peeled back, and I see this a lot around the future of work and HR these days, and talent attraction and talent engagement and all of that. They're like, we built our company with a set of assumptions that they're not bad, but they're just less and less aligned or fit for a world in constant change or for a world in which we really want to build it better for all. And so they can't move on day one because they've just basically been dealt this thing that like goes to the the heart of what and how they do what they do and takes time to figure out how do they want to, it sounds a little trite to say build back better, that's not quite right, (laughs) but to build forward with a different kind of DNA, yeah. 
And I think the irony is not lost on anyone that we have these companies who are telling the world you have to change faster. But when they get the same advice, it takes them a long time to reflect and make the changes they're asking of the world, right? It's a human nature is human nature. It's universal. Change is difficult. You know, there's a certain kind of change that humans tend to love. Like it's the change that we opt into, yeah. right? A new trip, a new place, a new adventure, a new relationship. Like yeah. we love that kind of change. But it's the change that we don't expect. It's the change that requires hard work. It's the change that blindsides you on a Tuesday afternoon. That's the kind of change that humans across the board really, really struggle with. And we've all had a lot of it in the last year. But the company, it's interesting. It's both, it's a kind of double standard. I mean, if I want to get really sort sure. of poking, there's very much a double standard. And I'm not saying this categorically everywhere, but it's more common than not. There's also, and again, I see this a lot with HR and the future of work, where they say we want to hire talent that has atypical backgrounds, not just diverse backgrounds, but like yes, everyone says this their way up. Yeah. And, and they're, and they have adverts and press releases and like, we're going to hire the more unique, the yeah. more nonlinear. Everyone looks the same after one year. There's no one different. And then who do they hire? Yeah. They hire the person that's just gone straight up the ladder. And it's like, really, you're, you're not practicing what you preach. But at the same time, I see where we are right now as as humanity as individuals as organizations like we have been dealt this candidly opportunity of a lifetime to rethink how and what we do and organizations who have not been walking the talk if they ever had a moment or thought they might this is it so it's going to be interesting i think in the next few years to see which companies do actually step in or step up into very different shoes, so to speak. And it's not just about reopening. It goes beyond that. And not that it's all about the pandemic, but sure. we've all had a kind of reckoning. And are you going to really get to the core of how you can do things better long term? Or are you going to kind of, to the extent that you can, revert back to how things were? And I think those who try, try to revert back to how things were, they're going to find out not only is that how things were, it no longer exists. Yes. But also there's just going to be enormous friction around the realization that so many of our systems were not designed to be human-centric, human-friendly, but also not designed for a world that has more change and more uncertainty ahead. But do you feel that with the virus now receding and America has pretty much reopened in every sense, right? Do you feel that burning platform has now been pulled away with profits going through the roof? Do you think companies are actually going to worry about the changes they started or as the, the, the gun to the head been removed? It's a great question. So I will not profess to have the answer. And actually, just as a side note, I'm discovering anybody who says they have the answer yeah, or that doesn't have the answer. Favorite example, we know what hybrid work is. I'm like, no, you don't. No one does. Yeah. And the more you profess that you do know exactly how hybrid work is going to play out, the less I am inclined to believe you. So I'll say I don't have the answer. I am, I am deeply concerned that we will get through this next phase. And I'm yeah. going to call it a phase because I do not think that reopening is necessarily a permanent thing. Yeah. I not think I think we're not even close from being in the clear. And this is not just a US thing. I mean globally. Oh, sure, of course. Globally. We have a global mindset, yeah. Global yeah. audience. Globally for sure not. The US right now is in a really good spot. But we don't know what's gonna happen after summer. We don't know after summer and Or even after Sunday, actually. <laughs> exactly. And also it's great that we're talking today, like our mask mandate, you know, like Yeah, it's just come back in LA, for example. It's back in LA. Yeah. It just got removed for the first day since March 2020 yesterday. Why so San Francisco? That there's been partial reopenings. I mean, wow, so it's very patchy in. at best. But like, oh, and and also, and I think it varies by country. Even if there was a municipal mandate of like you're allowed to get rid of masks, a lot of like private like apartment buildings or supermarkets, they still kept the masks in place because. Yes. They have workers that yeah. they want to protect and, you know, neighborhood associations, community members that you want to protect. And yes, it plays out very differently, I think, politically as well in the U.S. in terms of where you might expect those. Yeah, absolutely. 
But across the West Coast, in many cases, um, yesterday was the first day that it was basically, that you really saw notifications being removed off of walls, you know, people really saying, no, we're going to the gym and we're not masking up. That is huge since that like huge, 2020. Yes. But anyway, back to your question, I am worried that we're not going to learn enough yes. <laughs> from the last year, year and a half. At the same time, I think that we may still have, actually, I think we definitely still have a whole lot to learn. And both that the pandemic and variants and so forth, that's not over. But I'm looking at this, what I've been most interested in and steeping myself in, it's not 2020 or a pandemic. It's actually a world that's just full of more change, more uncertainty, mm -hmm. more what I call flux, right? Yes. And that existed before 2020. And True. all of the things that were in flux before 2020, they are still in flux. And in some cases, they're even wor worse or exactly. Yeah, they've been ignored, many of them, for a year. Exactly. Exactly. Or they've run rampant. Like, for example, automation. Yes. Automation is a huge source of change and uncertainty and unknowns for a lot of people. It was around for sure before 2020. And then during 2020, it just sort of gained pace because... Yes. Robots don't get sick. Robots don't protest. And robots used, you know, as a blanket term. Sure. And we had lots of questions around the ethics of automation and AI before 2020. Then the pandemic hit, and it's like most of, many of those questions just sort of disappeared. They were no longer asked. It was just yeah. like, automate if you can. And here we are, and like the potential impact and implications of automation is just as big, if not bigger today than it was two years ago. We don't seem to be any better at wrapping our heads around what that means. So in that regard, I say, back to your question about, you know, gun to your head or whatnot. Yeah. I worry that we haven't learned enough, not nearly enough, about the last year. I think we have much more that we're going to learn. We may not learn it simply because of a pandemic. I think we will also learn it through things like automation. Most of all, probably climate. Yes. The amount of change and uncertainty, just wreaking havoc that climate is going to, to bring on us, um, which may not lead to us masking up, but it's going to lead, I believe, to the same kind of seismic change in our lifestyles, in our business models, in our expectations, in what's possible and not. I wish I didn't have to say this, but I'm like, I think we're actually still going to learn a lot, but I don't think it's going to be the comfortable kind of learning. Mm -hmm. I look at this right now and say, particularly with, with reopening, We've got this window of opportunity right now when our backs aren't quite as tight against the wall. This is exactly, this is the golden moment to make some of those changes. My concern is that people will be like, whew, we're done. We survived. We're not going to rock the yes. boat anymore. And they're just going to go back. But the problem is the next time big change hits, we're going to be still ill-prepared. We could have done things much, much better. So verdict is out, but you know, that's a little bit of, sort of getting inside my head where I think that's my head. Yeah, a different way of looking at it is to say, let's look at all of the big issues that companies and the media and the general population is concerned about, whether it's climate change, whether it's diversity, you know, whatever is important to you. And if we look at the amount of progress we've made in the last year, and if we consider the last year was the opportune time to make that progress, it's not unfair to say the rate of progress going forward is probably going to be slower, right? Because that opportunity has now gone away. But let's not be so pessimistic because people may, you know, not like this pessimistic tone. Let's shift gears a little bit, you know, we've been talking a lot about emerging markets and then shifting gears to the United States. You're sort of in the beating heart of what's driving the U.S. economy, right? Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and so on. So you're in touch with all these leaders of tech companies and all those wonderful guys and girls trying to change the world. Today, the United States, for the first time, faces a serious competitor in the likes of China. I mean, we've never had that before. The Soviet Union was never a competitor on commerce. It was a military competitor, right? Have you seen a shift in the way companies are thinking about this? Has there been a change? And, and how should they be thinking about this? I'm looking at all of this. I know it sounds like what we were just talking about, a bit of a downer. Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. This. This is an incredible time to be alive. This is a golden moment. Exactly. We've got a real competitor. I'm like, this is just, 
this is the kind of stuff as if, not just as a futurist like yeah. you dream about times like this exactly so that so can we change we don't have to have our backs against the wall we can still do this we can make the decision to start right now and you know it even does apply also to the US and China so from where I stand there is definitely a shift in a recognition and I know this is awareness so there's a greater awareness awareness and and I'm gonna sound this is where I, I do love being that kind of insider outsider sure. because even when I travel most people and I, I take this usually as a compliment most people they have no they do not place me as American yeah they not they, they place me and my last name is Finnish so I often yeah. am like I'm from Finland because they're like mm, Finland okay yeah. Not, not a contentious place. Yes. And so I go a bit incognito sometimes. But from an American perspective in this case, if I wear that hat, there's definitely an increased awareness. Now, whether how that awareness plays out, whether you feel completely threatened by it, whether you see it as, wow, the biggest, I don't want to go so far as to say partner, but the biggest source of where we could get inspiration or market or sure. whatever a huge um, market let's call it yeah that. The, that depends a lot on where you are located in the country to some degree certainly what sector you're in and also for lack of a better term what you've experienced with or about china thus far have your supper conversations been about how china is stealing jobs and spying and all that sure. or is your conversation about Wow, China in two generations has done, done more things. Right? Exactly. And and those two conversations, I don't want to say that one is more valid than the other. They're both legitimate conversations to have. That's going to completely shape your worldview. So, I will also say and I've served on I served on a national commission for the Chinese government um, that was about the sharing so the yes. China had a national sharing economy commission. They still do that I'm, I'm technically on, um, it's a little bit, how do I say this, it's, I don't know the current status per se, um, I am an international member of it, sure. and China has been absolutely one of the most supportive governments around the sharing economy. Now what's interesting to note there is that China tends to define the sharing economy differently than pretty much any other country mm -hmm. on the, in the world. And so that gets fascinating, I mean, the sharing economy or the notion of shared assets Yes. It aligns really well with China's flavor, if you will, of capitalism. How and, does China define it? Oh, it's a great question. Um, today, China defines the sharing economy as the whole economy. As the whole <laughs> so, economy. Yeah, well, that's yeah, good. It is all shared. <laughs> it is. So I'll give you a little history and context, and it's, it's really, really interesting. And um, every five years, China comes up with their five-year plan. Mm -hmm, of yes. What are the national priorities and what are the national challenges? And if you end up on the list of national priorities, you can be assured of, you know, visibility, funding, like they decide to invest a lot in these priority areas. And then challenges, you know, kind of just raise the specter of they're also going to be investing in them, but they're going to be, they're more of the like flashing red lights, beware, we need to take action. And back in 2015, the sharing economy was named a national priority, which no other country on the planet has done, partly because they're not structured the same way, right? But yes. all of a sudden, and at that point, I'm working with sharing economy companies across the board, which we think of and define as access over ownership. Yes. So you're going to put an asset into shared use rather than own it outright. So far beyond Airbnb or Lyft, for example, which we can debate whether that's even part yeah. of the sharing economy, but car share, like bona fide, car yeah. sharing, home sharing, tool sharing, shared clothing, shared appliances, like there are all kinds of versions, just so many platforms out there. Anyway, that's how we would typically define the sharing economy. China began by including ride hailing and shared bicycle platforms and the likes of Airbnb and what's called Tuja, which is um, the Chinese Airbnb mm -hmm. platform, etc. And they declared also that the, the sharing economy was going to comprise 10% of China's GDP by 2020. Pretty exciting, yes. right? You know, that's an ambitious goal, okay, for, for a country the size of China. And then they just started plowing money into these platforms, which at the time was really exciting because you were saying, we're getting global yes. validation of this concept. And then the years pass, and you start realizing 
that all of a sudden, and on the one hand, they're doing a lot of innovation. We're seeing sharing economy mm -hmm. platforms for things like makeup and houseplants and sharing economy that examples that we don't find in most other countries. Yes. But we're also seeing them start to go far beyond the definition of what the rest of the world would typically call it. So for example, and I think it really became clear to me when I was on a panel a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and I heard, uh, and it was a Chinese official, and they said, trade, global trade is sharing economy. Import-export, anything that's related to import-export. Which because is everything. We're sharing. I was yeah. like, and, they, and then they said education. Education is the sharing economy because we're sharing information, we're sharing learning and knowledge. And I was like, I think it's called education. <laughs> you know, like it, it, you start realizing, wow, this, but what I want to bring up here in a really helpful way, a country that can see the sharing economy, and I'm not saying the sharing economy is perfect by any means. Yes. I mean, when done well, when done responsibly, it's an incredible thing. It's super powerful as a business model. The most powerful I could find mm -hmm. because it helps people save money. Yes. It uses resources more efficiently. It, again, when done well, helps build community, social capital, all of that. When done poorly, I mean, I, there are enough examples I can show you. When we just sort of share what I call share washing, we slap the term sharing on a platform because it yes. sounds, but not because it's actual sharing. So with that caveat, I have to say, China, to be able to re-envision their potentially entire economy through the lens of sharing, that's really powerful. That's really, particularly when they're framing it in terms of sharing that produces more harmony, mm -hmm. more balance, more sustainability, etc. So I know I've gone off track. No, it's very bit, interesting. But it's fascinating. And so for me, again, back to the US-China bit, yes. I'm sort of bridging, in this case at least, certainly, I'm bridging both worlds. And I'm realizing how China defines the sharing economy presents some very real risks and some very real like optics yes. are a bit of a problem with trade and education and so forth. But what they're doing, if we can actually responsibly, holistically rethink all assets through a shared use lens, that, that could potentially be a really, really good thing. Then bringing that back to the U.S. and telling startups or, you know, yeah. here's what China's doing. They're like, what? Right. But they see it's a matter of being able back to what we were saying earlier, kind of holding the paradox. Yes. Being able Two to competing the ideas, yeah. pros and cons exactly at once and say, how can we learn from the good of what's going on here? And how can we prevent ourselves from falling into the same blind spots or traps? The dean of the Rotman School of Business in Toronto, I forget his name, he was a former dean, but he had this way of thinking about the world. He said that if you want to be an insightful thinker, you have to accept that the world has no answer. It's always a paradox. And if you want to have a clear view of what to do, you must be able to hold the two or three opposing views in your head at the same time and play with them. It's when you assume there's no paradox is when you get into trouble. And you mentioned this idea. I mean, it's the same way you're thinking about it, right? You always have opposing views in your mind and you're trying to see what can I learn from this? Why does this work? When does it work? When does the other one work? And I like that way of thinking. It's a very powerful way of thinking. So we have all these listeners around the world. As someone who's looking at all the big trends and what's happening, what would you say would be the top two or three things that people need to to that watch out for, but the trends that they need to think about how to surf for better for lack of a better word. You know, what are the ones that are definitely coming their way or already here? I appreciate how how wide we can cast this net. Mm -hmm. Let me take this this way because I know that a lot of people who are listening are focused on strategy. Yes. In, and that's awesome. That's great. And I'm, you know, I've spent a lot of time as an advisor, as a futurist, yeah. at like looking at strategy and how do we set it better and so forth. And one of the things that I've continued to see, and this predates the pandemic again, is that strategy is good. Strategy is helpful. Yes. Strategy is what we do in the outside world. Yeah. I think this past year, a lot of strategies have been blown to smithereens yes, and what we would happen and like didn't happen. And, and now what do we do? And can we react to that change? Can we manage that change? Can we um, lean into that change? 
But what we haven't really done a really good job of, and I say this writ large for a long time, we haven't really done a good job of understanding our relationship to change, our mindset about change. And why I say this is because it's the baggage we bring to the table when we're building or developing strategy. And so the framing that I want to put in terms of what are the big trends we need to look out on the horizon, I think one of the biggest, and it's more than a trend, I'm not sure, I feel like it's like a meta, it's almost like a force of gravity or nature. And that is simply that the future is not more certain. The future is not more stable. The future is not more known. The future is more uncertain. The future is more unstable. The future is more unknown. And I think that the last 12 to 18 months have been a little bit of like a warm up or a wake up call. I mean, hopefully not. It's not a pandemic, but like we're going to see more of the kind of constant change and like churning change moving forward than we are less. And as a result, here's the piece about strategy. When we build strategy, it's typically this sense of there's strategy with, I don't want to say a singular end goal, but as part of it, something might change, but it's usually like one or two things and we'll react to them. We'll manage them. So the change, and here I guess I am digging a little bit more into change management strategy in particular, which is great. I think we need change management strategies, but all of our change management strategies speak about what we're going to do or make happen in the outside world. Mm -hmm. What we don't do is actually condition or take time, take stock of how do we relate to change and think about change and what do we believe about change? Going back to what I was talking about before, what we were talking about in childhood um, and far beyond, that actually conditions whatever strategy we may wish to bring into the world. And so why I bring this up, one of the trends I feel like we all, every single human on the planet needs to level up and improve, so to speak, their relationship to change, the kinds of changes that they resist, the kinds of changes they fear, etc. And it's not just about any one business decision. It's about every aspect of your daily life, personal life, family life, work life, you name it. But it's this tension, again, not, it's not yeah. a paradox so much, yeah. but it's a tension between what is your mindset about change and what is your strategy about change. And I feel like it's going to play out. We've seen a little window into how it's played out this last year in terms of who's coped well and who's really struggled and in what ways we've struggled, et cetera. But moving forward, we're going to see a lot more of this need to reconcile these two different things together. So I like that. I like that a lot. And I'm just going to uh, paraphrase this or reflect this for the audience, right? We spoke about trends, but what you're saying is you need to know the trends. But before you look at the trends, You've got to understand how you're going to be approaching those trends because a trend is basically a change, right? And then the other point we're making here is that there's no certainty because I think what you said is very, very important. As people think we're getting out of COVID, they think, well, we can finally go back to things being normal. But what you're saying is that there's no normal. Things are just always going to be, there's going to be disruption and And we need to get comfortable thinking about how we approach change, how we develop strategy for that, and how we manage the business to do that. And I like that. That is true because I think a lot of people are just so pleased that the vaccine is here. COVID seems to be in the rearview mirror. And what you're saying is that even if it's not COVID that rears its head again, there's going to be something else because no one saw COVID coming, right? You, you've really done a beautiful job here, Michael. And and a couple things that I'll just sort of add is like they're good, not just taglines, but sure. they're good way to kind of summarize. Even though right now, at least when you reopen, yes, of course, take a deep breath. Be like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm alive, yeah. right? I'm not saying don't appreciate the fact that we're not where we were in yes. a year ago kind of thing. But do not become complacent. Do not think this is over. Do not think we have learned what we need to learn yet. Right now, I mean, it's, it's a different example, but Australia, right? Australia and New Zealand, they did really well last year. And now they're locked down again. And if you talk to people there, I had a call with a friend just yesterday, you know, there was a sense of complacency. Yes. That and it is not doing anyone any favors right now. No. And, you know, they'll probably weather it okay somehow, but like they... They thought they were done, anything but. 
And I think that all of us face our own versions. And again, personally, organizationally, societally, about that sort of thing. But back on the change um, management piece and just the, the trends versus the what do you bring to the table, the best way I like to phrase this, and again, you can put this in a business setting, a board of directors setting, or like family conversation. Yeah. Do you see change from a place of hope or fear? Oh, I like that. That's, that's a good not question. Strategy. But here's the thing. That's not strategy. Yes. That's mindset. State you, is, mat is what matters. The state of mind and your mental muscle yeah. that can or can't deal not just with an individual change, but with constant change. And what I mean by that is the assumption that by the time you've reacted to one change, so to speak, yeah. in isolation, by the time you've done that, something else will have changed, yes. which means you may need to revisit that change again. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes your head want to explode. Yeah. I get me, mine too. I'm like, yeah. can't just not have this. The fact is, and this is another kind of segue to another kind of meta theme. The fact is, this isn't something we get to pick. This yes. isn't something we opt into or opt out of. So, of course, I would love to be able to control everything, predict yeah. everything. Humans like that. I can tell you, too, you're going to waste a lot of time and mental energy and make yourself crazy if you continue living your life or leading your business, believing that is to be the case. Because what we seek is not control. What we seek is an illusion of control. Yes. When well we can said. let go of that, that's the empowering part. That's the freeing part. That's the part that you say, oh, that's a mindset thing. And when you can do that, if you can let go of your belief, again, the illusion that you can control things, you actually set a different strategy. Yes, that's true. You know, I always tell um, clients, most executives will not tell you this, but their strategy is developed from a precondition of fear. They're afraid to do something and they'll rationalize it as being driven by data and analysis, but they're just scared to do certain things. April, that was a great way to wrap up things. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you, Michael. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Same to you. Um, I know it's a little bit late there for you, too, so thank you for the late hour. If you need anything else, let me know. I just, I do actually just want to give you a shout out. Like, this was lovely. This was really, you are a very, I like, I just like the whole flow and I like where you took me and took us and took the audience and everything. Well, thank you because, you know, you obviously know what you're talking about. You have a great passion for it. So it was very easy to speak to you. And I actually learned a lot and I think the audience will love it. Thank you so much, April. Have a good evening. All the best. Same to you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.